Hello and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. That is our mission. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our, our library of weekly archive shows. And it is our goal to make a difference um, every single Saturday that we are on the air. So um, good Saturday morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever you are listening to this, um, everyone across the nation. And I'm so happy to have you with us because uh, today we have um, we are revisiting one of our um, our friends and our our advocates, our national advocates. Um, today we are revisiting um, a couple of cases that happened in the uh, Virginia area, and we're also going to be doing a review of some new legislation, as well as maybe some national media coverage. Um, with Trina Murphy. Um, but before I bring her on in just a minute, I want to say um, hello to Delilah. Good morning. How are you? And uh, what's what's going on there in Myrtle Beach? Oh, the usual. It's tourist season here, of course, <laughs> and very, very busy. The roads are crowded. The beaches are crowded. And it's been a hot summer. So nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. Yeah. Well, it's it's just as hot here, and um, I, I'm glad that I'm kind of indoors and not and not not out there. And um, you know, Delilah, I just I just um, revel in the fact that we perpetually never run out of material to talk about because you know, crime is um, in a vastly renewable resource. And and with our focus on the aftermath of crime, as I was saying off there, um, you know, uh, the advocates, the, the victims that become advocates, such as myself and Trina and other people, I just think that with people like us who do our small part and propel things forward, it, it's just ever-changing. So we, we spoke to Trina, I believe, um, shortly after um, – the uh, tragedy with Alexis, and and there's been so much that has happened since then. So I, I'm very glad to, to have her and other people um, to revisit our show so that we can get updates on what's going on. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, that's an interesting point that, no, we never run out of material, unfortunately. I wish we would. Um, but I think, you know, taking things to the positive side, for every crime committed, it seems that there is a victim somewhere who comes out of it as an advocate. And it always boggles my mind because fortunately I have not been a victim of crime as the two of you have, but um, I just admire the resiliency and the strength that are shown by so many people who've been down that path. And, you know, hopefully we're seeing a lot of change and in attitudes and in, you know, 
improving the situation all the way around, you know, from the preventative side to how to look at evidence and how to process evidence, which we'll go into further in this show. So, you know, we, we all go through something horrible in our lives one time or another. And what is horrible to one person may not be as horrible to another. So it's all kind of relative there. But um, Mm -hmm. again, I think the fact that advocates rise up out of the ashes like the Phoenix is just an amazing testament to humankind. Absolutely. And yeah, I'm just, always so proud to be able to host this show. It's it's never an easy task to do this show and to keep to keep the quality up, but I, I'm so proud of to know so many fine people um such as Trina. So without further ado, um Trina Murphy um is um a quote unquote victim but I like to think of her more as a survivor from the from the Charlottesville, Virginia area and she has she has taken up the cause for her niece Alexis, and I will. I like to say good morning. To, good morning to you, Trina, and welcome back to Shattered Lives. It's a pleasure to have you today. Good morning, Donna and Delilah. It's always a pleasure to be in your presence, and I'm looking forward to today's show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a it, again, it's a it's a distinct honor for us, and you know uh, there has been. Um, so much change in Virginia, and uh, conceivably, um, you know, you've had, there's been uh, many high-profile documentary-type shows uh, surrounding the cases, uh, and, and not only, I have to mention, um, there are many um, nonprofits um, out there now that are, are really doing very good work with regard to um, missing persons and homicide and trying to ensure that young people stay safe and you know perhaps they each has a different perspective and uh, but I think they're all doing good work and we have to give everybody their kudos and you know your your participation was was kind of evolved out of help save the help save the next girl and what happened with Alexis so for those people who may not be entirely familiar can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what happened to your niece and and how things got started for you as an advocate sure so <clears throat> my niece was actually abducted on August 3rd, uh, 2013, so we're coming up just a a little over a week shy of the anniversary. Um, She was 17 years old, a rising senior at Nelson County High School, um, captain of her volleyball team, a good student, um, just a beautiful soul inside and out. And um, we're still three years out reeling at the fact that um, this even took place in such a small rural area where we live. And I've said it over the last three years numerous times that if this can happen to us, it can happen to anyone. Um, Because we do live in a very small community where everyone knows everyone, and she was abducted in broad daylight from um, a very public place. So it's, it's truly something that can that can touch anybody, and, and you're never prepared for something like this. But um, I did start working with Help Save the Next Girl, which is a grassroots uh, foundation that was started by Jill and Dan Harrington after the murder of their daughter, uh, Morgan Harrington, 
after attending a concert at John Paul Jones Arena in Charlottesville. And since that time, you know, you never know what life is going to hand you. And you just have to figure out what to do with it once it's there. And I knew that once the trial was over and and um, things kind of settled down, that this had to be a passion of mine. It's really hard to just walk away from some type of tragedy like this without trying to give something back and make a difference in hopes that this won't happen to someone else. Mm-hmm. Well, with um, within your family unit when this happened, um, how did you personally decide to become the spokesperson? I mean, I saw all of your family members just you know, absolutely reeling from this. And and uh, did you just because of your own personality and makeup or, or what you may, you know, you deal with people in your in your uh, occupation and being a nurse, um, did this just, you felt like this came naturally to you? I, I don't think so. <laughs> um, <laughs> Alexis's mother actually asked me to be the spokesperson. Um, she asked me and my niece um, or her sister, um, Angela, to kind of tag team it and do the interviews because even as her aunt, uh, there were days when, I had no idea how I was even going to contemplate doing an interview or speaking to somebody. So as her mother, I can certainly understand why why Laura would not want to be want to do that. Um, so I think it just kind of happened. Um, a news reporter showed up and she said, "Go do that." Um, and three years later, I'm still doing that. So I don't think there was any real discussion about it. I, you know, when tragedy happens, you just being a nurse teaches you to just do what you have to do. Um, so you put your right. emotions to the side for a while and you get the job done and um, you crash later and then you get the job done again. So I do think that that training certainly helped me in this process, but um, I think it's just something that happens. Right. And you, you, you step up. Any of us that work in the, in the helping professions, myself included, you, I think you just naturally gravitate to want to jump in and help what what have you learned i mean pers- in terms of your personal growth um since this time i mean uh, your your life has changed immensely talk talk a little bit about that yeah i often tell people that you know i really don't even remember what my life was like prior to all this um this fundamentally changes how you look at everything um it changes how you look at your personal relationships, your friends, the people that associate with. Unfortunately, it makes you um, second-guess all of those relationships to some degree, but I am fortunate that I have amazing family and friends that have supported me all the way. Um, You know, it's just my life is very, very different. Um, I spend a lot of time doing advocacy work, and I found that I'm I'm a lot more focused. Um, I know what what I want and what I want to achieve, and I just try to stay on task with those things and keep pushing forward. Mhm. Um. What What was the outcome of 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 the case with Alexis? So Alexis is <clears throat> doctor, uh, and you know she's presumed murdered, although we've never recovered her remains. Um, he is currently serving two life sentences with no possibility of parole. Um, and and do you do you feel as if that um, 
is a sense of resolution for you, or it, you haven't felt that because her remains have not been recovered? Well, it's, it's certainly some amount of closure. It's, it's not what we would like to have. Obviously, we would like to be able to lay her to rest um, properly, but knowing that he will never be out to exact this type of pain on any other family uh, does help me sleep better at night, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I I can only, um, I remember back when my dad was killed in 1981 and, and having other people um, that have, you know, has experienced the same thing. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about how your relationship with Joe Harrington and Dan Harrington grew and and um how how that that relationship all evolved and talk a little bit about their case and your commonalities? Sure. So I first met Jill when she came up to do an awareness event um for Alexis. Um, in Charlottesville shortly after. They they reached out to us probably about two or three months in um, after the case, you know, became nationally known about. And, it, you know, I have never in my life, and I, I don't say that uh, lightly, they are opening their home to, they open their home to us, they open their hearts to us, and I think the fact that they could totally relate with where we are just, you know, it grew that relationship. You don't, unless you have been through this, you really don't understand. And I know people are sincere in saying that, you know, they're there for us and, you know, they're praying for us and I believe all that. But um, until you've experienced this, the, the not knowing is something that's really unexplainable with words. And they didn't know for 101 days prior to their daughter's remains being found in a very remote location. Um, so that 101 days for them, they know how that feels. For us, it's been almost three years. Um, so it's just natural that we would gravitate to each other, I think, um, because we we share a common bond. As horrible as that bond is, we still share it. And um, they're just two very amazing people who have done a lot of good out of a lot of tragedy, and um, I'm honored to, to call them friends. Yeah, absolutely. We I've had the honor of having them on the show as well, and um, they are amazing. Uh, you know, with the um, advent of the, you know, the their killer Jesse Matthews and all, uh, and in the in Virginia itself, and um, just the incredible amount of press and all. Have you have you seen a a, a real change um, with regard to people's behaviors or their perceptions after um, after he was caught? Well, I would like to think so. I would like to think that, you know, people are uh, paying more attention. Hello? Donna, I think her call dropped. Okay. Um, we'll wait for her to call it, call back in. Here she. I think this is her. Is this her? I don't know what happened. Yeah. Trina, there you are. Sometimes the calls yeah. drop. That's okay. 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 Um, so back to what I was saying. I I would like to think that you know people are looking at at their own personal safety and awareness a little more uh, given the amount of coverage. 
um, media coverage that a lot of the Virginia cases have received, and both locally and nationally. Um, it's still very disheartening to me. Charlottesville is a, a college town and still drives down the street at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and see young women jogging, you know, with earphones in or just not doing things that are necessarily um, good for their for their safety. So that that does bother me, um, but I don't know that there's, you know, you're never going to, affect everyone I guess until they're affected by it. But mm-hmm. Trina, can you can you for the benefit of the listeners, can you explain some of the things that maybe you have gone out and done presentations um to educate these young women especially. I mean it can happen to anyone but we find mm-hmm. that, you know, young women are very, very vulnerable. And mm-hmm. what have I I know you've done a lot, but just kind of go over some of the things that you're trying to get the message out to these women? Well, I'm, I'm trying to start um, as early as possible to get this message. I've, I've done some work in the middle schools. I'd like to be in the middle schools more. Um, I do at least uh, six or seven presentations a year um, on the high school level, and I have both young women and young men in those um, groups, and I'm, I'm very fortunate that they're always very well attended, and just try to to meet them at their level. They, they're always hearing, well, don't do this, don't do that, you know, do this, don't do that. So I'm really trying to meet them at where they are. And I think having Alexis's face behind me as a reminder that this, this is real. And a lot of people, because she was, you know, she played sports, she was played softball, and um, a lot of kids from the surrounding schools played sports with her. So she's very real to them. And I think that that is important. I don't want to ever just get up there and lecture to them. I want to try to meet them where they are and say, look, you know, I'm going to give you this information. It's really important. I hope you're paying attention, and this is the end result. Even if you're not putting yourself in harm's way, my niece was buying gas. You know, she wasn't at a party or, um, she, you know, wasn't drinking or under the influence of any kind of drugs or anything. So it's it truly can happen anywhere, and I just want them to be aware of that and not live in fear, but just really live in awareness. Just be aware of your surroundings and what's going on, and not only for yourself, but for your friends. And I think that's where the young men come into play. You know, if you're at a party and you see a girl looks like she may be in trouble, don't just walk away from that. Help her. You know, if it's no more than telling somebody else and getting them to help, put a part in this. It, and it's Isn't isn't the measure of you perhaps doing some of these presentations making an impact? I always think when people kind of hang around after the presentation and come up to ask you a question and want to do this, you think, yes, I've gotten through, right? I do, and and I I usually have a line of children wanting or young adults wanting to ask questions, and that's always um, encouraging to me because, if I touch one person in that room, then that's probably, you know, possibly one life that I've been able to save. So, um, yeah, I, I just try to take them one seminar at a time, one individual at a time. You know, it, it may seem like a small thing, but I think it's so pervasive. All of our attention is so into our electronic devices. How do we fight that in terms of it seems contradictory to being aware of your surroundings. And I'm not talking about this Pokemon craze or whatever, but 
just we're not paying attention, we're looking down at our phones or whatever perpetually. How do we how do we get through to, to these kids about that? You know, that's a very good question, Donna, and I'm I'm not sure that I have an answer for that because <laughs> I don't either. I'm, I'm a perpetual phone user myself and I have to catch myself saying, Okay, I'm in a public place, I need to be looking around, I need to be paying attention. Um, but our lives are so attached to these things, you know, it I can check my email, I can do work, I can everything is encompassed into this little thing that I can hold in my hand. So having gone through this type of tragedy and being a lot older than they are, if I have to remind myself, then it's kind of a daunting task for a teenager to remember that. Um, but I do think I, that is part of what I talk about in in my uh, presentation. And I actually do a little demonstration, you know, where it's like, okay, how many times have you caught yourself doing this? And I'm walking, trying to do something on my phone at the same time. I, I just think you have to keep telling them. Um, you just have to keep bringing it up in a, in a positive way. Um, I use humor a lot because I think laughter is the best medicine, and I think when people feel good about what you're telling them, even if it's a difficult subject, they're more likely to, to retain the information. So um, I think we just have to keep trying. Yeah, and perhaps because you are not their parent, they're going to receive it better from you and seeing Alexis's picture behind on the screen that – Somehow you you would be making more of an impression than oh mom or dad just leave me alone you know I've heard it before right. yeah <laughs> right? and in our panels we um, in my presentations I usually have a couple of law enforcement officers that talk about um, things like you know using check in on social media and it tells people where you are um, uh, there's usually uh, a Commonwealth attorney or assistant Commonwealth attorney and they all do their portion of the presentation, and I'm always last. And I think they are the information piece, and I am the reality. Uh-huh. It's interesting. And they tend to pay it. So it's like, okay, we hear these numbers, but now now here's the, the reality. Here's a real true human story. Right. And I think that drives right. it home. So, um, sure. It's, Trina, what are you I, finding I in that I'm sorry. Go ahead. I said I just I hope we're being effective. <laughs> well, I wonder what are you finding in that age group that you're speaking with the, the middle school and high school about um, a lot of the different apps that are being used by that age group, and a lot of them are things that their parents can't see. I mean, there's like mm-hmm. hidden apps where they chat with each other and so forth, and even apps like Snapchat and, and so forth where, you know, it doesn't stay there. So you, as a parent, can't really go back and check to see what, they're, what they've been doing online. So that makes, mm-hmm. you know, that a lot more difficult. It certainly does. And uh, I think I have a twofold part to that. One is depending on the child's age, you know, um, I'm not sure anybody – under a certain age needs Snapchat. Um, but that's a personal thing that, you know, people have to decide for their own children. I think we need to be very cautious of, of what our children are doing online and trying to pay as close attention to that as possible. Um, I found out just a couple of weeks ago that there's actually an app that looks like a calculator. So if you went on your child's phone, you wouldn't even know that it was an inappropriate app because it looks like a calculator. 
on the people creating these apps. What is the necessity of that? Um, why why would you create something like that 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 could potentially put a child in harm's way? Um, and we have to push back on the businesses that are supporting the adaption of those apps. It's just not okay. Yeah, it, it's ever-changing, and you can't – it's almost like you can't keep pace with that. But you, you're, you're trying the best you can. Um, I, I was wondering, with regard to some of the other initiatives, we had a very good show with Will Marling, who um, used to be the executive director of NOVA, who's now a consultant with the 32 National Campus Safety Awareness and the BTV Family Outreach Foundation. Um, and it was very effective with regard to these new protocols with campus safety awareness and whatnot. Do you feel like now that these new initiatives, like on campuses, are 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 in place, that uh, can can we possibly keep pace with um, you know the level of violence or the level of sexual assault? in what we're trying to enact in the schools. And are you involved with, with those organizations as well, Trina? Uh, not that one in particular I'm not involved in, but I, I feel like if we're all coming at this from a different angle and meeting in the middle, then we will be a lot more effective. We all, all the different organizations and groups have something different to bring to the table. And mm-hmm. um, one thing that I would like to see is just people, these organizations working more closely together and being more intertwined. It, no one organization is ever going to be able to do as much as a multifaceted team. Um, STEM in middle school, it's important to catch STEM in high school. It's, you know, one of our legislations um, spoke to the fact that as the first time we're teaching young men and women about healthy relationships is when they get to college orientation, we've already missed the mark. Um, you know, one in five women will be a victim of sexual assault sometime in their lifetime. And that, until we can change that number, um, you know, we're we're we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, that's that's for sure, and that that's uh, one of the one of the three lies which we will address in uh, a couple of minutes. I was going to bring those up, um, and we can talk in more detail with regard to that. But I know that um, a few weeks ago, you were one of the people that was featured in the two hour forty eight hour special. And it it talked about a you know whole cross section of you know uh, different female victims in Virginia, your, your niece being one of them. Can you can you tell us your experience with that and your impressions and if if you felt that was um was was a fair journalistic portrayal? Oh, I think um, Forty Eight Hours did an amazing job with that piece. Um, how they intertwined the cases and kept going you know, back and forth and in and out of them, uh, I was just in awe of how good it turned out. And you never know when you're doing these national media pieces, um, it's a whole different level than just your local uh, reporter coming. But I was I was overwhelmed at, at what a good job they did, and I'm hoping that hundreds of thousands of people saw that show and, and it, it spoke to them and that they're having those conversations with their children and course I've gotten a lot of feedback um, since the show aired and that was actually the second airing of it but um, it yeah I was I was very pleased with with how that turned out so it created a big impact and, that, and that's good that they you know did, did that quality of a job and it's very hard to 
you know, intertwine all of these factors and make it come out as a cohesive piece, I believe. So, yeah, I was very impressed with it, too. But um, can you can you tell us um, with your association with with um, Jill and Dan, what what is what is their focus now after Jesse Matthews has been convicted? Um, what's what what is her focus? I know she had missions in Africa. That was uh, Morgan's, um, you know, really big um, mission to help people in impoverished countries. But what what are they doing now in the next chapter? Just to bring us up to date with that. Well, I think they're just continuing their piece on education and, and getting the word out there and doing more safety seminars. And um, there's actually one coming up on August the 6th in Roanoke. Um, and you can go to the Help Save the Next Girl page and look up the information on that. If you're local, then I'm sure they would love to have your participation in that. Um, mm-hmm. But just continuing the education piece of it, continuing to tell Morgan's story and keep her legacy alive and um, – you know, offering what they can to give back. You know, they're never going to get their daughter back, but um, they can certainly try to, again, keep this from happening to someone else and make sure that people don't don't ever forget about her or her story. Absolutely, yeah. Um, in, in, in your opinion, when you look at what happened with Alexis um, and the fact that she was doing a very innocuous task getting gas um was there do you think for someone her age and what they typically do was there a particular vulnerability there that oh her attention was not drawn to what she was doing um or or this person just kind of charmed her um and what what can you identify there that if if it could be done again what what do you see as a particular vulnerability in that particular situation? Hmm. You know, I've never been asked that question. Um, <laughs> it's I, I don't know. You know, she. If I had to speak to something, one particular thing, her naive. You know, she was very naive. She was young from a rural area. This stuff like this doesn't happen in Nelson County. Um, so. That probably is the thing that would stand out the most. She wasn't dressed provocatively. She had a long sleeve shirt. You know, she, again, she wasn't drinking or doing drugs. I don't think there's any way um, that he would have been looking the way he does, that he would have been able to charm her into anything. Um, it's almost the bigger question than where she is, is how how he managed to pull this off. And we didn't get a definitive answer on that either. Um, we know that she somehow ended up at his home, but we, we don't know how that happened. And I will go to my grave believing that she did not go there voluntarily. I I do I just will never believe that. And were there, were, were there videotapes at the gas station? Um, so at that particular time, it, you want to talk about nuances and coincidences, um, she parked at Pump 9, which was also her volleyball number, um, and it's kind of become significant in, you know, how we remember her. Um, but at that time, the gas station, the uh, video cameras did not shoot past Pump 6 and 7, so 8 and 9 was not on the video camera. Ooh. Wow. 
it just doesn't make sense. It was just, you know, another, if, if they put a little more money into having one extra camera, then they would have had that view. Is that the, is that the deal? Well, I mean, we would have had a view of eight and nine, you know, whether we yeah. would have seen something different is, it's hard to say, but um, right. they now have a camera on all nine pumps. So um, they do. Again, wow. it's just it's one of those things <laughs> where you just have to make the best of a really horrible situation. He was on video. They were caught on video camera. He actually held the door open for her when she walked into the store. Um, so you know, mm-hmm. and he he admitted in trial that he followed her. He knew where she lived. He knew where she worked. Um, so. You know, I th- he I think he just took an opportunity that was presented to him, um, and right. you know, here we are today. Yeah, wow, it's incredible. Um, let's let's talk a, a bit about when we talk about um, you know vulnerabilities and opportunities. Um, that kind of gets into the the whole area of um, fifty nine um, uh, that the Virginia legislature recently passed with regard to requiring uh, a, a curriculum in, in high school and uh, family life education, uh, and, and it includes a, a plethora of things. Am I correct in saying not only do they need to have dating violence curriculum, intimate partner or domestic violence, sexual harassment, and sexual violence. Is that, is that you know, heretofore there was nothing in the curriculum necessarily about that, and now all of these pieces have to be there? Um, that's true. There was nothing about that in the curriculum um, previously before this legislation was passed. So uh, we're very excited to, to be able to push that legislation or assist in pushing that legislation forward. Um, and so now kids on those age levels will get age-appropriate uh, curriculum on, you know, recognizing this. If you if you don't know what dating violence is and it's not talked about uh, and you're not educated about it, then how are you supposed to know that you're in a, a difficult situation? Mm-hmm. Well, how does that play out? Does, are we talking like an, an hour a week or do you know? Has it been defined yet? It has not been defined yet. Um, the law is, is just coming on the books. Um, it was just signed not, probably less than two months ago. So uh, the Virginia Department of Education is working um, to, you know, hammer out the details of that uh, legislation and how it's going to look and how the curricula is going to look. And um, so hopefully we'll do a follow-up show when we know that. Well, that's great. I mean, in the best of all worlds, what what would you like to see in terms of the frequency and the content? And are they are they perhaps going to you know the delegate you were working with? Are they going to involve you in this? Uh, I'm not 100 percent sure. We um, I would be very remiss in not mentioning um, Delegate Eileen Fillercorn, who is out of uh, Fairfax, uh, Virginia. She has just tirelessly worked um, to get these three laws um, passed, and she is just such a great advocate for young women and for our cause, and um, I'm just very happy to have her um, as a part of our team. She's she's a very important piece, and she's certainly in a position um, to make real changes. Well, yeah, I I read, you know, the the detailed report that you sent, and it sounds like it was very thoughtful and and detailed, and there were good rationales. So, um, I mean, 
so this is in a family life education um, curriculum. So it will potentially be incorporated with with other topics. But I think you know there's so many there's so many factors here: sexual harassment, um, dating violence, that it it could be a course that stands all its own. Wouldn't wouldn't you think? It, it certainly could, and that would be, you know, of course that would be ideal, um, but I'm not an educator, so I don't know, you know, the nuances of how those things arrive in the curriculum or how the curriculum is written, um, so it's kind of hard for me to speak to what that is going to look like. Would I love to see a class on dating violence and, you know, uh, as an elective uh, and, and sexual assault and awareness? Oh, absolutely. Um, and um Unfortunately, funding is always uh, a part of that initiative, and so right. we just have to keep pushing our our government, keep pushing the school systems that this is something that is necessary. high priority. It, right, it's and high priority, and we need to do what we have to do to make it happen. Yeah, I'm I, I I'm very familiar with that working uh, working for state government, and so funding is always an issue, and there are perpetual cuts. But since you've got something new on the books, and 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 there's you know there's so many high profile cases in Virginia, I optimistically think that at least they will start going forward with these. Let's let's talk about the um, um, HB one one zero two with regard to um, the Department of Justice and Higher Ed to develop a a multidisciplinary curricula on trauma uh, with regard to sexual assault and investigators. What's going wrong there, Trina, when when investigators are not handling these things correctly? Well, again, you know, um, have a lot of friends in law enforcement and have the utmost respect for them. But you're you're still talking about an education piece here. Um, if these officers and investigators are not trained in handling um, the victims of these crimes, especially when it comes to sexual assault, it's you know one wrong thing can very easily say to a woman or a man, I, you know, I've already been traumatized enough. I'm not about to to sit in a courtroom and, and rehash all of this. So they need to be handled um, by people who have receive specific training in in what to say, what not to say, you know, how far to go in the first interview, do I pull, those are, you know, that's a pretty extensive training that needs to happen. And so, um, again, this is something that we need to push for uh, funding for to make sure that 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 education is available and that the uh, persons who are investigating these cases uh, have received that training before they're they're thrown out to do it. Um, and in many cases, I don't think it's, it's intentional. It's just a, li- a lack of knowledge of how to how to deal with uh, someone who's had this type of trauma. Right. And uh, trauma-informed care, Delilah, I think you have some working knowledge of this, too. I know we were looking into doing a show on this. This is a very sophisticated, thought-out area in terms of trauma-informed care and educating other people, it being multidisciplinary. Um, so this would be, isn't that right, um, Lila, from your understanding of trauma-informed care? Right, absolutely. We do need to do a better job of how we treat the victims in all types of cases. And recently in Texas, there was a case where 
a victim was put into jail because she had a breakdown during trial. And I, I just find that to be totally disgusting. And it happens all the time with, with victims of other types of crime. And what happens, it, I'm quoting a case of human trafficking where a victim, in order to uh, make the case, will become a witness. And if that particular victim, maybe she's from out of the country or, you know, living on the fringe or whatever, a lot of times they will put that person in jail. So they spend that time in jail so that they know it flee, which is another another way of re-victimizing the victim. It happens yeah, I mean, all the that, time. That's just, you know, even to have to have that conversation tells us why we are where we are in, in talking about this, you know. Um, and I'd like to even see us change the language. It's, uh, yes, I know they're victims, and that's how the court system has it up. But if you – I'm not a victim. I'm a survivor. My, Me too. Uh, I'm a thriver. Alexis, <laughs> Alexis's mom, mom is not uh-huh. a victim. She's a survivor. We're we're yeah. still standing. We're still here. So, yeah, that's we positive. We're victimized, but we did not let that define who we are. And if we did, we did it in a in a positive way. If anything, this has made me a better person, um, not, you know, someone who's sitting in the corner wishing to die. So I think even changing the language of how we refer to survivors um, is important. You know, if we start calling them victims from day one, then that's it, then well, I'm a victim. Um so I, I think we, we need to think about the language. We certainly need to think about um, these people have survived something horrific that will forever change them. And it's our responsibility. It's law enforcement's responsibility. It's a collective effort to make sure that they are treated in the highest regard with the most respect that we can give them. Right. And uh, this this may be a little bit off the wall question, but do you feel as if, and, and I know we have a good complement of of female investigators and hopefully in sexual assault particularly, but can can men become as sensitive to these issues as female investigators? Well, Donna, you're blowing out the good questions today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, hmm. I want to say yes. You know, I want to say that anybody can be educated to be sensitive to another person's suffering um, because saying no to that takes it to a whole nother level uh, across many uh, dimensions. But I, I do think that, that they can. I think, um, you know, I try to put myself in that situation. If I were uh, victimized with what I want a male or a female investigator, I, I don't know. I think I would just want someone confident and someone that could understand what I just went through and go out of their way to do everything they could to make sure I got the justice I deserve. Yeah, I I agree with you. And, I, you know, in my opinion, I think the jury is still out. But um, with regard to whether one gender would do a better job or another, I think it comes down to, you know, who you are as a person and, and your, your experience and how you approach things versus who the gender might be. But, and, again, I think uh, media stereotypes it on all of those, 
you know, law and order shows. They talk about the Vic, the Vic, the Vic, and, and mm-hmm. it's always the hard-driving males that, you know, um, are not sensitive at all. So that could be a stereotype. So that Well, I, I think it's certainly a stereotype. I can speak to that with regards to Alexis's case because, obviously, most of the investigators, the lead investigator um, was a male. The lead investigator for the FBI was a male. Most of the investigating um you know, those who testified, with the exception of a few, were male. And um, I I can speak to the fact that they all were and still are incredibly sensitive to what they were dealing with. Um, I still have members of the FBI team that were part of the investigation call me randomly and just say, you know, how are you doing? How's Laura? How's the family? So, you know, that lets me know that, they're, They're invested in this. Even though, yeah. even though they may be the big guys in, in the suits with the guns, um, this they take this home. They take it home, yeah. and it becomes very real to them. And, um, you know, they internalize it. And so kudos to them for what they do every day. Yeah, well, it, it sounds like you've had a very positive experience with regard to that, and that's good to hear. Let's. Uh, we have about 14 minutes left of our show just to give you a little time time check there, Trina. Um, and I, well, let's talk about the, the third bill, which the acronym is PERCS, and it's not uh, – so, so, so tell us about, um, well, two bills, HB uh, 655 and 1160. What, what are those about? So the PERCS bill, um, this was just mind-blowing to me. Um, so a perk is the kit that is taken when you've been sexually assaulted, you go to the hospital. Basically, a lot of people know it as a rape kit. Um, and it's the, you know, the swab, the DNA, the bodily fluid, whatever is included in that kit. In the state of Virginia, um, until this legislation was passed, we had over 2,300 kits that had never been processed. Never. That's incredible. it's mind-blowing, like I said, never been processed because there was no, and, you know, I I could just, I could go on and on all day long about how unreal that is, but that's Well, this is definitely a national crisis, too, isn't it, Trina? It's happening everywhere, and, you know, case in point, I have a client who was raped when she was 10, 12 years old, had to wait 20 years and in the meantime, and I think this is the point that 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 isn't being advertised all that much is this person is still out there committing the same yeah. kind of crimes on other people. Um, we have to do better, and I'm so happy to hear that, that Virginia and you are are taking a, a stand on this. Yeah, so uh, Governor McAuliffe, um, who I also need to give a, a big round of applause to, he is he is certainly. Um, been instrumental in, in helping us get this legislation through, and um, I am very proud to be from Virginia right now because I feel like we are taking the lead on a lot of this legislation, and we're hoping to push it out countrywide, but um, it's always good to live somewhere where you feel like your voice is being heard and um, the change, real change is, is taking place when you beat the drum, so um, I'm very happy to, to be a part of that. Um, but to have 2,300, you know, per kits not tested because we don't have the money is inexcusable. So um, this bill rectifies that. What span of time was that, Trina? I'm sorry? I'm sorry. Uh, what, what span of time was that did, did those 2,300 cover 
um, a couple of years, several years, do you know? You know, I, I don't know, Donna. I do know that prior to this legislation also, um, if a perk kit wasn't tested within, uh, I believe it was 120 days, if I'm not mistaken, don't quote me on that, it was it was right. off. Right. Um, so now we're speaking to five years. And that was actually based on, um, you know, students in school and college. Because if you're raped your ninth, you know, your freshman year and you don't decide to say anything until after you graduate, you have another year past that. So there's now a five-year standard for saying, you know, this happened to me and I now want to prosecute because I know a lot of people have difficulty understanding why you would wait five years, but it's, again, you need to educate yourself on, on why someone would want to do that. Um, I'm, I'm working with a young lady now who who waited a lot longer than that, and part of it was she didn't really understand what had happened to her until she got older. And she went to college, and she started seeing all these things around that say, you know, are have you been the victim of sexual assault? And then she realized, well, yeah, I have. Um, to You know, it's not teaching that curriculum in the middle schools and high schools. So, Again, it's, it's got to be a collective effort. We have to um, look at this from all angles and make sure that, that we're filling in the loopholes, that, that we're not letting um, survivors fall through the cracks. In, in her particular case, then, would, is it that um, it's been too long and there, there could not be a conviction as a result? No, we're hoping for a conviction. We're hoping for a conviction. So, um, you know, we will that will be sometime next month and, and we'll see what happens. But um, we feel like even though it's been a long time, there's a lot of uh, good evidence and, uh, you know, kudos to her for, for pursuing it after all these years and realizing that, you know, a lot of her life has been affected by something she didn't even understand she had had gone through. Right, right. Um, something that occurs to me when we talk about educating young people and the differences in middle school versus high school and level of maturity. I mean, I hear a lot of people saying there's a lot more meanness and uh, vindictiveness even at the middle school level. What do you think needs to be done in terms of, is it just a matter of less sophisticated material to be presented at middle school before they get to high school? Or, you know, in your presentation, do you have some sense of what the differences have been? Well, I always have to, you know, cater to the audience that I'm speaking to. And oftentimes I don't know what that, you know, I know the age dynamic, maturity levels, um, even with regards, you know, regardless of what your age is, there's a maturity level there. And so oftentimes it's when I walk into the auditorium that I understand who I'm, who I'm speaking to and I have to kind of switch things up a little bit. But, you know, our children are very, uh, well-educated these days. Um, they know a lot more at a lot younger age, and we want to try as parents and as advocates to keep that sense of innocence and, um, you know, not give them too much information. But I think a lot of times we coddle them a little too much. I think they know way more than we give them credit for. And sometimes we just need to be honest with them and say, look, this is something you may face. And this is what you need to do if that happens. Um, and, 
again, I understand, you know, the sensitivity of that, but at the same time, there's there's nothing sensitive about what we're dealing with. Right. There's no. It's, there's it's a very that, uh, in your face. Mm-hmm. Um, that fine line between scaring them and informing them, right? Yes. Yes. And it's a very yeah. thin line. Very yeah. thin line. And um, just just so that I know, um, when you go into these school systems, is there um, do they have to send out letters? to uh, families to say there's going to be a presentation on this? I mean, what kind of – are there particular safeguards with regard to these? Or it, No, they just, do. They have to – yeah, they have to opt out. So they don't have to sign to say – the curriculum goes home, and they, you know, they say this is what the seminar is about. And so if the parents don't want their children involved, they have to sign to say they don't. And if they don't sign that, then the kids are free to come. Okay, so they're opting out. A lot of times with with victim services, that's similar to in certain states. Um, so are your are your presentations like well, if if you're on a panel and you're you're the last one, but if you if you go solo, are they like an hour presentations in a in a school auditorium or cafeteria or something? Uh, they are usually in the auditorium or in it depends. Uh, when I did the middle school, I did do it in the auditorium, and that was specifically to uh, a group of women. It was it was a, actually a club um, that these girls belonged to, and so I was just speaking to that club. Um, but it it's usually in the auditorium. Um, the the two big ones that I do every year, uh, the one at Monticello High School, usually encompasses about three or four hundred students. So um, we're hitting the small groups, we're hitting the big groups. I'm I'm talking to anybody that will listen. I'm I'm doing a, a group of older women, a women's um, club. In, in October, um, and there's not a single young person in this group at all. But we all have that um, responsibility to keep our, our young women and men safe, and so I'll speak to anybody to listen. Right. I mean, they could be in, they need to inform their grandchildren or whatever, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. Um, so what, what do you see? I mean, I, I think I have a sense of it. You're continuing to, to advocate at, at this level, you know, on behalf of, of Alexis. But if you were to project long-term, long since your life has, has changed, what, what do you project your role to be? And you, you, you seem very comfortable in doing this now, you know, uh, three years down the road. Yeah, boy, have I given a lot of thought to that. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know. Right now um, I have a, a lot of projects that I'm tossing around. I am, um, I'll say this publicly for the first time, I am in the uh, midst of writing a book about our experience as a family and Alexis' case, and I'm hoping to have that done um, by early next year. So. Oh, Wow. Congratulations! That up great. A, thank you. That has taken up a lot of my time, but um, I, I don't know. I know that I will be doing this work on some level. I don't know what that is, and I've learned. If there's one thing I've learned in the last three years, um, you know, God loves it when we make plans. So I, I'm just going to do what I feel is is put on my heart um, to do at this at this moment. And if that changes, then I'll I'll switch up and do a different route. But this this has certainly become a huge part of who, who I am, and I will be doing this type of work on some level uh, until I'm not able to do it anymore. All right. Well, that, that's certainly – I think we're cut from the same cloth, you know. Um, 
and you know this is a little bit far afield, but uh, you know with uh, I'm just for me, I would like to think that justice is colorblind, but with all of the shootings that we've had with law enforcement and whatnot, I just wondered in our last couple of minutes, do you do you have any thoughts on that and how that that permeates? Our cases, if we take them out of the realm of what's happening with law enforcement? Well, you know, I'm in a very unique situation with regards to that in that I work very closely with law enforcement. I have a great deal of respect for law enforcement, and I feel like most of the men and women that go out and put their lives on the line every day for our safety are good people, and they're there to do the right thing. Um, I am also the mother of two black sons, so... um, I feel like I'm dead caught in the middle of that situation. Uh, I mm-hmm. do I fear for my sons because of the color of their skin? Absolutely. Should this even be a, com- a conversation in 2016? No. Um, I'm, you know, violence is never the answer to more violence. I could have, I could have decided to just throw caution to the wind and kill Randy Taylor when he abducted Alexis. That wouldn't have made any difference. I wouldn't be here doing the positive work that I'm doing. So if I could say anything about that, it would be that we all need to have more respect for each other. We need to have more love for each other. And regardless of what occupation you're in, if there's someone not carrying their weight or not, if I have a nurse uh, next to me that's putting patients in danger, I'm going to speak up about that. There is no code that covers that. If I have a neighbor who is putting my neighborhood or my grandchildren in danger, I'm going to speak up about that. So we need to speak up on both sides of that coin. Um, I know that there is an unwritten rule um, that cops don't tell on each other, but these bad fees are putting all of my friends and the people that I care about that wear the badge in danger. And I'm not okay with that either. So it's time that we all have more transparency and we just we just have more respect and love for each other. And, um, yeah, that's uh, Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And, and to make that switch because what's happening now is almost almost like a, a cultural shift or something, and, and it scares me to death. It actually does. You know, where, where this beco- if this becomes commonplace, Trina, that's what really scares me, that people, people will, will become numb to what's mm-hmm. going on, and we, we can't allow that. We cannot. No. no. You know? and, and, again, it's a societal thing where, you know, we all look to the government or we look to this person or that person, but this is our responsibility, and we have a responsibility to speak out about it. You know, um, I try to be – I try not to do a lot on social media because – you you know literally then just spend all your day arguing with people because your opinion differs. But this is a this is a societal problem that everybody needs to address. Um, and being quiet about it, you know, isn't going to help it. We have to speak out. We have to let our opinions be known. And we have to just like we have to work for effects for change with laws for victims of crime. We have to work to change the perception that just because I don't look like you or I don't love the same way you love or I don't dress the way you dress does not make me, you know, my life is still important. Yeah. Well, uh, and I imagine your your sons have heard your presentation a few times, right? They have. (laughs) 
Well, that's good. Very, very good. You know, this has been a, a very, very re- rewarding hour, and unfortunately, our time, our time has passed. So we're going to have to sign off for now. But I say thank you, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. And um, this is going to be on our archives uh, when when you get back to your office or wherever. If you would kindly pass this on, and everybody listen to this show as well as other Shattered Life shows. Please go to my website. Be aware that there is also a uh, a book that has just come out from Grief Diaries I have done on homicide loss. I would appreciate your support with that. Delilah, do you have any parting um, thoughts for this show? Well, I would just like to thank Trina for coming back again and yes. for all of the really, really hard work that I know you're doing out there in the name of Alexis. Hopefully one day someone be, will be able to bring her home to you. Yeah, well, thank you both very much. It's always a pleasure to be on your show and uh, look forward to the next time. Ladies, you all be well. Well, thank you. You too. And have a good day. Uh, thank you everyone. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. Delilah. Mm-hmm.